Well, good morning. Let's try that again. Good morning. So for those of you who are newer here this morning, or for those of you who have not been here at City in a little while, we are going through a sermon series that is entitled Back to the Basics. Back to the Basics. And the purpose for this sermon series isn't to kind of rehash old things, but to remind us of the essential things of what it looks like to follow Jesus and to serve others. I do want to say that last Sunday's message, I would really encourage you, if you did not listen to it, if you would go back and do so. But this morning's sermon is, the one, is one that I feel is mission critical for all of us to listen to and to understand. Now, you might not be a follower of Jesus, but you're here, someone's invited you, you're kind of looking over the wall at faith, you know people that are followers of Jesus, you've got some questions and you're here. This sermon this morning is going to be one that will kind of open up a, a wide door for you in understanding of what Jesus has done for us. And then for those of us who are committed followers of Jesus, whether it's been for two weeks, or for many decades. This sermon is really the bedrock and at the core of who we are as Jesus followers. The title of this morning's sermon is this, Back to the Basics, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and Me. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and Me. Now I do know this. Whenever someone, especially a pastor, mentions the Holy Spirit, people get a little bit nervous. Because the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures does incredible things. But I want to calm your fears. We're not going to be talking about some of the gifts of the Holy Spirit this morning. We're going to talk about the fundamental work that God, through Jesus, sent His Spirit into the world to do in your life and in mine. In just a moment, we're going to read from the book of Galatians. Galatians is written by a guy by the name of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul wrote a large chunk of the Newer Testament, and he was one of the religious leaders of his day. He was considered to be a Pharisee of all Pharisees. A Pharisee was an individual who took very seriously the 613 laws of the Jewish faith. 613. Not only did the Pharisees live them themselves, but they enforced the living of those laws in the communities outside of Jerusalem as well as in the capital city of Israel, Jerusalem. But the book we're getting ready to read that was written by Paul is written to a church in Galatia. The Galatian church is a church filled with what you and I would call fundamentalist Jews. They live where they do because Jerusalem has gotten liberal other cities have gone liberal as far as Judaism is concerned. And so these people have immigrated away from Jerusalem up into the area of Galatia, and they are strict, law-abiding Jews. Which means they look at the 613 laws and they live them as flawlessly as they can. Now I talked about this last week. But the Apostle Paul, in his letter to Romans we looked at that last week, talks to people just like this. And here's what he explains. He explains that living the 613 laws will never justify you. 
It will never make you righteous in the eyes of God. The purpose for the 613 laws were that God would have a group of people in the world who would live fundamentally different than all other peoples and would be a constant sign of God's blessing and his love. What had happened is, these people had excluded everyone else. Everyone else. And so Paul comes to them with an argument found in Romans chapter 4. And in Romans chapter 4, the Apostle Paul comes to these individuals in Rome who are living strictly by the law of God, the 613 laws, and here's what he explains. That the first law ever given to the first Jew, and his name was Abraham, he is Father Abraham. Father Abraham, the father of all of Judaism, God came to him and called him to be circumcised in the flesh. That's the initial movement. That's the initial work. And Paul argues in Romans chapter 4 that many years prior to that command of God, God had declared Abraham as righteous, as justified, because of his faith and his belief and his trust in God. That initial act, that act of circumcision, was something that happened years after Abraham had been justified by faith. So what he ends up saying is, and it's stunning for Paul, who is Jewish to say, is that therefore Abraham is the father of all people of faith because he put faith in the promise of God before he was circumcised. So whether you're Jew or Gentile, Paul says, Abraham is the father of everyone who has faith. Now can you imagine how difficult that would be if you are Jewish and for centuries you've been living by the 613 laws. You had convinced yourself that living by rules and living by laws would justify you and make you right with God. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, is that God is for everyone. That although he had chosen the Israelite people, now that Jesus is in the world, God's choosing, God's overarching call to faith is moving beyond the Jewish people through Jesus, who, oh, by the way, was Jewish. God is moving through him, and his call to put faith in himself now is available to all people. That, by the way, is the good news. Jesus is the king of everyone who comes to him by faith. And through faith in him, you and I are now declared as justified and righteous. I want to be clear. If you think doing good stuff makes you right with God, you need to know it will never, ever work. Ever. We come to God by faith. We come to Jesus, we put our belief in him, our trust in him, our faith in him, and in doing so, God then declares us as righteous and as justified. Now here's the reality of that. That does not mean we're perfect. 
If you think by works or by living by a set of rules or getting everything right will make you right with God, you have a problem. And that is, have any of us sitting here ever done one thing wrong? Raise your hand. Look at your spouse. If they're not raising their hand, punch them. Say, get your arm up. The reality of it is we've all sinned. We've all stepped outside of what's best from God. And in doing so, there's this struggle. Something tells us that no matter what I do in my own work, trying to obey a set of rules, I'll never get it right. But if I put my faith, my belief, and my trust in Jesus, I am declared as justified, as righteous in the eyes of God. Now, can you imagine the Jewish people in Galatia? They've been living by the 613 laws. They received the gospel gladly. They put their faith, hope, and trust in Jesus. But then all of a sudden, Gentiles want to join the church. There's a problem. Because the Gentiles don't live by the 613 laws. And the Gentiles aren't circumcised. And the Galatian leaders of that church begin to demand that Gentiles follow through with that act. And the Apostle Paul says no. The 613 laws are for the Jews only. They are not for the Gentiles, including circumcision. And that's where the problem comes from. That's what Paul is addressing in the book of Galatians. He is convincing people again that in Christ... We are all justified when we put our faith, hope, and trust in him. Now, what you have to understand is that the Jews and the Gentiles just didn't have different beliefs in the sense of historically, there was huge animosity between them. Gentiles had killed Jews. Jews had killed killed Gentiles. There were literally holy wars between them. And now Paul is saying that the Gentiles are welcome in to the family of God, and they're not distant cousins. They are actually brothers and sisters. And that created a problem. Now, to illustrate this point, I'm going to put something on that I've never worn in my life. Now do you get the tension in the Gentile church? Let's read in Galatians 5, 13 through 25. Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 25. Here Paul writes, it's near the end of his letter, and he's been arguing for the right for Gentiles to be included in God's family and to be justified and declared righteous. And here in verse 13, here's what the Apostle Paul writes. You, my brothers and sisters, shocking. He's calling Gentiles his brothers and his sisters. We are called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge in the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will destroy 
you will be destroyed by each other. Why? They're arguing over the issue of whether Gentiles can truly be in the church. That's what they're fighting over. Verse 16, so I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. In other words, we have a choice to make. You are either going to live by a list of rules, or you're going to walk in the Spirit. It's one or the other. Reading on, verse 19. These acts, that's what the NIV says, it really should say works. It's the Greek word energo, where we get the word work from. These works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft. And when we're reading this list, all of us are thinking to ourselves, those horrible people, until we hit the next one. Hatred, ugh, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. In other words, if yours isn't on the list, Paul makes room for it. <laughs> I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the crest, the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. The reason why I picked these verses from Galatians is this is where Christianity really meets life. It truly does. This is where we live. It's where I live, and it's where you live. So just for the next few brief moments, I'm going to pull apart that lengthy reading that we just had, and I'm going to explain it to us. Galatians 5, 13 and 14. I want to reread the first couple of sentences. Here's what Scripture says. You, my brothers and sisters. In other words, Gentiles, you are welcome in. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge in the flesh. There is a footnote in every Bible right after the word flesh. We're going to get there in a moment. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if you were to look at the text we just read, the word flesh has a footnote next to it. And here's what the footnote says from Galatians 5.13. Here's what the footnote says in every Bible. It says this. In context, like this, the Greek word for flesh or sarks, everyone say sarks, sarks, refers to the sinful state of human beings often presented as a power in opposition to the spirit. So what a lot of people believe, what a lot of people believe is that inside of us there's this spiritual force 
that literally moves against what God's trying to do in our lives. That understanding led to a doctrine that is called total depravity. Total depravity. I've heard that preached before. I've heard it preached often. I know some of us have come from other Christian viewpoints or teachings where you've heard of total depravity. It's that idea that because of your sarks, your flesh, you are absolutely worthless in the sight of God. You are totally and utterly a type of a person who is completely depraved. Total depravity teaches there is absolutely nothing good in you at all. And I want to tell you that is false. Utterly false. What I want to tell you is there's nothing good in you that can add up to you being justified or declared as righteous. But hear me clearly. When total depravity is mapped over your entire being, I'm going to tell you that's wrong. Utterly wrong. The word sarks, used as flesh in English, really deals more with what would be called animal passions or desires. It's the flesh side of us. It's the side of us that, yes, it is drawn away from God, and it pulls us to the left or to the right when God calls us to move in a certain direction. But here's what I will tell you, that each and every one of us can identify when we're outside of what is best. Now, when we think about animal passions, my wife and I in our home, we have two dogs, one of them weighs about 55 to 60 pounds. She's a real dog. We have another one that weighs about 13 pounds. She's a partial dog. Dogs have to weigh a certain amount to be completely dogs. My opinion, not biblical, but it is still God's truth. Now in that, here's what's true about our dogs. If we put food out, especially the big one, she will gorge herself until she gets violently sick. She has no control over her animal passions, none. But you and I are not like that. Even without Jesus, we are created in the image of God. You are not totally depraved. You are created in God's image. Now I know when I share this, there are people that will quickly say, well, let's look at the book of Romans. They'll pull out verses from the book of Romans, like Romans 7, 19 and 20. And it reads as follows. Here's what Paul says about himself. Same guy that wrote Galatians, wrote the book of Romans, and he's talking about himself. Look what he says. He says, for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil that I do not want to do. This... I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I that do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. A lot of doing there. A lot of doing. But I want you to notice the first phrase. Notice what he says. For I do not do the good. What's, what are the next words? I want to do. Paul's not utterly depraved. 
He wants to do what's right. It's in there in all of us. If he was totally depraved, if he was utterly depraved, he would not say that I actually want to do the good. He wants to. But his sarks, his flesh, brings him away. I also know that some of us would say, well, what about Romans 7.24? I'm going to read it quickly. Paul says this about himself. What a wretched man I am. So just after he talks about knowing what he should do and actually wanting to do it, but he can't because of his sarks, he says about himself, Romans 7.24, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? He says, what a wretched man I am. You see, that word wretch even made it into the song Amazing Grace, that you would save a wretch like me. You see, from those texts came total depravity. But the word wretch does not mean total depravity. The word wretch in Greek simply means this. Two words brought together, it's an adjective. It means to bear or undergo a callous, a callous. It means you have worked so hard and you've been under such a burden that your hands are covered in calluses. It does not mean you are utterly depraved. It means that Paul is saying of himself that he is a wretch. He feels the strain of wanting to do what's right, but always getting pulled in the other direction, and it literally leaves calluses on his soul. It is not utter depravity. It is not. And again, Amazing Grace says that you have saved a wretch like me. What Paul is saying is that he is experiencing the severe side effects and the ongoing strain of knowing what is right, wanting to do what is right, but struggling to get there. Then the Apostle Paul says, after that tension, in Romans 7, 24 and 25, he writes this, What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who rescues me through Jesus Christ our Lord. We are rescued. We do not save ourselves. You cannot work hard enough. You cannot accumulate enough good deeds to get out of that mess. We must be rescued by Jesus. Now what's fascinating to me as the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 5.14, the entire law, all 613 laws, the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Turn to the person next to you and just say, I love you. Both of them, not just one way, both ways. <laughs> but I want you to notice what Paul says, and Jesus said it, and it's found in the Older Testament. 
We are called to love our neighbors. We are. But how are we called to love them? As you love yourself. Therein lies the problem for many of us. You see, I was in the church for a period of time that whenever I went into the sanctuary and heard a sermon, I left feeling totally and utterly depraved. God was presented to me as a God who looked at my life continually with a microscope and found utter fault with me. That's not the good news. That is not what Paul is preaching at all. You see, if you're going to love yourself, you must do that in order to love your neighbor. And so what I want to say to you is this. You are not utterly and totally depraved. You are not unloved or unlovable by God. You are beautifully and wonderfully made. You are created in the image of God. You are. But I know that there's an unfaithful voice from an unfaithful source that speaks to many of us every day in our Christian life and tells us we are not worthy of God. Trust me, that is not God. That is the adversary of your soul. You see, once we understand that when I put my faith, hope, and love in Jesus, that in him I am declared righteous, I am justified, but I continue to walk in that. Now notice what Paul says. Paul says that we have to be careful how we live. But before we go there, I want to be crystal clear. How do you view yourself before God? Are you unlovable? Are you broken and twisted and dysfunctional? Or do you view yourself as being created in the image of God? How can we love our neighbors if we feel so unlovable and unloved by God? I know that I had to shed that untrue doctrine. Once it moved past that idea of salvation or being justified, once I move past that, I am no longer someone who is absolutely worthless in the eyes of God. Total depravity is wrong. You are created in the image of God. I want to do something very, very quickly. I want to pray for healing for some of us. We've come out of a view of God, or maybe we were taught a view of God that you truly never are acceptable in his sight. That erases Jesus. It never should. I want to pray very quickly. God, I pray for healing over all of us. If there are any here that feel unloved and unlovable by you, Jesus, I pray that the accuser's voice would be pushed away and that you would bring us into the truth of Scripture. God, do that work. We need it so desperately, in Jesus' name, amen. Now, what does Paul teach us? Paul teaches us that, yes, it is true that we are acceptable to God, but then he goes on to tell us that we must be careful. And the next thought that I had was simply this, that there are acts of the flesh that God calls us away from, but there's also the fruit of the Spirit so you've got the acts or the works of the flesh, and you've got the fruit of the Spirit. 
here is very simple. When I do the acts of the flesh, it's for me. It's for me. It's about those animal passions and desires. And when I do the works of the flesh, yes, they lead me away from God's best. But then there's also what's called the fruit of the Spirit. And the moment you say yes to Jesus, the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you and begins to transform you from the inside out. Here's what you need to know. If I live for the flesh, it'll be all about works. And there truly are works of the flesh. But if I come to Jesus in faith and I understand that I'm not right with him by works, nor do I stay right by him with works, no, instead, there's the inhabiting of the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says, I have the fruit of the Spirit. Now, here's the deal. Fruit is never for the tree. It's for everyone else. When you bear fruit of the Spirit, it's for those people who are around you. It's that they will see the love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering, self-control. But all of that is by the Spirit of God. But I also know this. I grew up on a farm. Fruit needs tending to. We had an apple orchard on our farm in Wisconsin. It was pretty sizable. You had to prune the trees. You had to take care of them. The same is true with faith. Yes, the fruit takes attention. But it's the Spirit of God that's ultimately doing the work in us and through us. Paul goes on to say at the end of our reading, since we live by the Spirit, let us say in step with the Spirit. In other words, looking to the Spirit of God and saying, God, help me. You know, in the list that Paul gives, he lists some pretty nefarious sins. He really does. Witchcraft, all kinds of stuff. But you know, there was one there that he mentioned. It was called fits of rage. Did you see that? Fits of rage, anger. Do you know that is something that I had to deal with about five years ago in my own life? In it, there were certain things in my life that I wasn't surrendering to God. And I ended up going into a fit of rage once in my house. By the way, that's the type of home I was raised in. Anger, rage. Kind of held that at bay, but it sort of came out. and What a nightmare it was. Ended up having to apologize to my family. The next thing I did was call up two of my best friends. And I told them what had happened. I confessed my sin. And then right after that, I called a Christian counselor and I went to see him. And he and I sat down several times and we walked it through. Not only that, but I looked at that area of my life and I invited the Holy Spirit in. Because when you live in the flesh, let me tell you, you reap the whirlwind. When you surrender those areas of your life and you submit them to God, you find that the Holy Spirit comes in and gives us a strength that's not our own. I cannot tell you the transformation that I'd experienced. I want to be totally honest with you. I felt like rage and anger would always be part of my life. Always. It was kind of the given. You know, hey, I'm German anyway, right? Kind of comes with the package of being German. 
It might come with being German, but it doesn't come with Christian. It doesn't. And so what I had discovered was that Jesus is true, always. In Luke 11, 11 through 14, Jesus tells us this. Which of you, you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who will ask him? The whole idea of walking with Jesus is about not living by works, but walking in the Spirit, just like Paul says. As we put feet to our faith, there are four things that I want to emphasize as we close. Number one, faith is what justifies us, not works. You are justified by faith, and you continue to walk in faith. You don't begin with faith and then end up at works. No, we begin in faith and we walk by faith. The next thing of putting feet to our faith is we ask the Holy Spirit would invade those areas of our life. The next one is this, is that in Christ, you can love yourself. You can. You can in a healthy, growing way. And last, Paul challenges us to love your neighbor, to activate that, to bring that into real life. I'm going to ask that you would stand with me. And as we stand together, I'd like us to take a moment and to open up our hearts by faith. Close your eyes for just a moment. If you've been living by works, but you started by faith, but now it's been all about works and performance and you're exhausted and tired, and I want you to take a moment to close your eyes and ask God to bring you back to a walk of faith that's empowered by the Holy Spirit. And if you're here, and you always thought being right with God was about getting it right every single day. And that if you did enough works, good works, God would accept you. I encourage you as the worship team begins to lead us, that you would open up your heart by faith to God. And that you would trust in Jesus. You'd put your belief in Jesus. You'd put your faith in Jesus. Not in your performance, but in his performance and what he's done for you.